Indie or AAA? Indie. Free to play or pay to play? Free to play. iOS or Android? Android. You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. I'm Alyssa Zalouf, and I'm joined on the show today by Brian Sapp from Jam City. Thanks for being here, Brian. Hi, and thanks for having me. In today's show, we're going to be discussing IP-based games and how working with IP impacts things like game design, game monetization, and user acquisition. But first, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey into the gaming industry, because I know you started in music. You're obviously well-placed to talk about IP because previous to Jam City, you were at Warner Brothers. Was that part of why Jam City made for a good fit? Yeah, so I think there's a lot there. So I uh, went to college in LA and through that was working in the entertainment space. I was a musician and playing in bands. And, you know, my interest at the time was the music industry. So I was actually licensing music to be in movies, TV and film. So think of it as basically the middleman between the music industry and the film industry, which was interesting, fun. But, you know, at the time, there wasn't a lot of growth opportunity in that industry. Both industries, I think, were struggling with the move to digital. This is like end of 2000s. And right about that time is when the smartphone came out. And I was watching kind of what was happening in the mobile market. I had a couple friends that were working console games here in LA, and they made the jump to mobile. And it just seemed like that's where the future was in mobile gaming. And so I decided to quit my job in LA and move up to San Francisco. This was in 2010 to get into the mobile space because at that time in LA there actually wasn't that much going on in, in mobile and it was all up in the Bay Area so went up there with about six months savings ended up having about 25 job interviews <laughs> a lot of them didn't pan out ended up getting a job at Tapjoy which was one of the like fastest rising mobile ad networks at the time and we were only about 30 people when I joined by the time I left three and a half years later we were 300 people so it was really just a great opportunity for me to get in at the ground on mobile gaming. Mm -hmm. And then from there, went to Warner Brother Games, where I oversaw UA analytics and monetization. And to some extent, it did tie back to the entertainment industry I was in before. But of course, we were focused on mobile games. And then about a year and a half ago, joined Jam City to oversee their UA team and now add monetization. And I do think that, you know, being at Warner Brothers and having an entertainment background definitely helped, you know, with Jam City's consideration of me as a candidate, but also obviously, you know, the eight years of mobile experience and running UA teams and analytics were probably bigger factors. I mean, obviously, it was a very smart move of yours to <laughs> identify mobile growth area. Yeah, my parents were not very happy <laughs> at the time. Right. But that's exactly kind of the experience of so many people today who are kind of just lately coming to realize how mainstream games are. I mean, even talking about entertainment, game revenue is far outpacing blockbuster box office revenue, TV as well. It's just becoming the the much more dominant form uh, of entertainment. And and obviously also now everyone's a mobile gamer, probably including your parents. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, and I, I always give this advice to people who are trying to either come into this industry or coming out of college. I mentor at USC. And one of the things I always tell them is look, look for an industry that's on the rise, that's growing. Because, you know, when I was doing music licensing, like it was really tough. Like if you're in an industry that's decelerating, it's really hard to advance your career and to learn. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's talk a little 
little bit about Jam City because you, you guys make both IP-based games and, and non-IP based games. Why do you think the company decided to leverage IPs in the first place? So we are you know, amongst many companies who leverage both IP and non-IP. And I'd say at this point, it's fairly common, but the founders of Jam City, Josh, Chris, Aber, have entertainment in their DNA. And a lot of the execs here come from entertainment companies. So I think more so than other mobile gaming companies, we have very close connections to Hollywood. And so it was kind of a natural extension. And when Josh and Chris founded the company, they really looked at mobile gaming as mobile entertainment first. And so part of being in mobile entertainment is working with some of the best IPs in the world. And now there's like definitely business considerations when going after IP. Just to name a few, we assume and we see often that IP has the ability to lower your CPIs or your cost per install Mm. um, because you're basically marketing something that people already are already familiar with. So um, in theory, you should be opening up the top of funnel uh, a bit more than a non-IP game. Um, additionally, we noticed, and this is definitely true, is that the platforms, both Apple and Google, tend to feature IP games more. Um, and that's one because it makes their platform look good, right? Like they care that they have great IPs on their platform and great games. Two, what comes with IPs are a lot of activity around the IP outside of the game itself. So. For example, obviously, Marvel releases two to three big films a year. Those are opportunities for the platforms to bundle featurings around those big movie events, and those help accelerate the games as well. So definitely, like, Gem City has entertainment in its DNA, but there are many business reasons to also partner with the IP to help drive a successful game. How closely does the marketing of an IP-based game deploy in lockstep with wider kind of franchise considerations like movie releases, etc.? So it definitely depends on the IP. You know, I've worked with many IPs from my days at Warner and here at Jam City. And IPs, you know, have what we call brand teams or brand managers. Mm-hmm. And these teams are really focused on making sure that every product that's using the IP, whether it be theme parks, whether it be movies, TV shows, books, plays, are leveraging the IP around these bigger tentpole events. You can kind of think of them as the gatekeepers and the um, go-to-market plan or roadmap planners of the IP. And Disney is very well known for this, right? So Disney will have a lot of synergy between all of its various products. Mm -hmm. To give an example, like May the 4th is big in the Star Wars world. And so, you know, you'll see a ton of activations around all these different Star Wars IPs, including we have a game called Disney Emoji. Blitz, we did a complete takeover of the app icon and in-game events around May the 4th. So we have IPs like that and like Harry Potter where, you know, these worlds and these brands that own them are very well run and well organized. And then there's smaller IPs that just don't have that same level of attention. And on those IPs, you know, you just have less marketing around these temple events. So it really depends on the scale, the size and the company behind the IP in terms of how closely marketing works with these kind of bigger events that are really sustaining and driving the IP. And how does a studio go about acquiring an IP? Is the dynamic normally kind of game companies going after rights or do you get approached proactively by studios? Do you develop relationships and then you kind of get first look every time it's, you know, a new Disney movie or a Marvel IP? Are there bidding wars? Those are a lot of different questions, but can you speak a little bit about the process of acquiring rights and how that goes? 
Yeah. So the short answer is all of the above. The longer answer is a company like Jam City. We've built a working relationship with many of the top studios through our past games. And so they kind of know what to expect when they come to us with an idea. So both the studios will come to us with ideas and then vice versa, we'll go to them with ideas. And um, it really depends on the IP. So imagine that you are working in licensing at Warner Brothers, for example. Warner Brothers has a huge catalog of IP. They have everything from Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, DC, down to tons of TV shows, tons of smaller movies. And so with the really big IPs, you're going to have everybody and their mom coming to you, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to make a Harry Potter game. Everybody wants to make DC game. And so with those games, they are the gatekeepers. They're basically listening to all these pitches. They're planning out how many games for each IP they want to do. They have to make sure to pace it so that the games aren't cannibalizing each other. And then the, the studios will come to them with ideas and they'll pick, you know, whichever idea they think is best, plus factor in the deal terms, right? With the smaller IPs, mm -hmm. IPs that aren't those huge tentpole IPs, they'll often come to developers like us and even smaller developers, indie developers, looking to exploit those smaller IPs because they're just not as in high demand, right? So they kind of have to build the business case in that, in that scenario. So definitely a combination of both us going to them and them coming to us. And how does it work when you're talking about studios coming up with ideas? How are you kind of marrying and at what stage are you kind of marrying game mechanics with the IP? How closely do the two kind of have to talk to each other? Are there times that you're kind of taking IP just as, okay, here are some characters and, and this is basically how they would act and everything else is us? Or is it a much sort of deeper manifestation or expression of a given kind of world of IP? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think when looking at IP games, generally there's going to be two paths and they go hand in hand. So the first path, and, and you do this for any game, regardless of IP or non-IP, is identifying the market opportunity, right? So most bigger companies and smaller indie devs are doing this themselves, have teams that are looking at the bigger market and saying, okay, this is the size of casual puzzle match three. This is the size of match three with meta. This is the RPG. This is RPG with whatever kind of features. And they're kind of looking at the market and saying, we think there's an opportunity to go after this market, right? So you're doing that no matter what with any kind of green lighting of any game. And then separately, sometimes the same team, sometimes different teams are looking at the value of IPs and looking at how big is this IP? What's it doing in the box office? What's it doing on TV? What's its social following? Does it have a big following on Twitter, Facebook? Are fans engaged with it using Google search to follow how like popular the IP is? And then what is the forward looking release schedule for the IP? Is this an old IP? Is this a dead IP? Is there no more content coming out with this IP? Or is there a lot planned? And so you basically have two separate checks. One is what's the game opportunity? Where do we think we can make a game that will scale and make money? Mm -hmm. And then two, what's the IP opportunity? Where do we think there's under-exploited IPs? Right. Or maybe they're over-exploited, but we think there's still room there. And then you kind of marry those two things together. And this is where I think an IP can really expand the possibility of a game. So the reason you see a lot of Marvel RPGs is because it's obviously a huge universe with characters that everybody loves. And in that case, you know, when you marry Marvel with an RPG, and the main motivation of RPGs is character collection, and that's what drives purchases, that's what drives engagement. It just goes hand in hand. And you've actually seen that, you know, I would have thought that as many Marvel RPGs as there are, they would start cannibalizing each other. But we've seen time and time again, they don't. They're having success. Similarly, Harry Potter for us, you know, was the marriage 
of the Harry Potter IP, which had really not been done in a free-to-play format before with storytelling. Mm. And if there's one thing that Potter fans love, it's the stories behind Harry Potter. And our game takes place at Hogwarts and kind of lets you create your own story at Hogwarts. But that's an example of really unlocking the power of the IP and driving users into the game, which helps basically align the IP with the motivation of what would keep users in long-term plus what would drive them to pay. And so those combinations are going to be very different, but those are how you assess those opportunities. It's interesting that you're kind of talking about the marriage. In a way, it sounds like you're talking about the marriage of IP also with specific genres. Do you find that there are game genres and subgenres that come up again and again when it comes to kind of studios developing IP games? For example, are we unlikely to ever see a hyper-casual IP-based game or not? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the way to answer it is, you know, if you look at slots and casino games, for example, you see a lot of IPs coming into those games that are, you know, one, able to market to middle America, if you will, or older Americans who still watch TV. So you see a lot of TV IP, but you're not seeing, you know, you're not going to see, at least to some extent, these are, this is one slot game that has many slot rooms or one bingo game with many bingo rooms. Mm -hmm. You know, I think at that point, you're kind of using tier two IPs because people are engaging with it for a limited time and then they kind of move on to next thing versus IP that's based on on Game of Thrones. So when I was at Warner Brothers, we released 4X game, Game of Thrones. Like that IP is huge, massive. And you're not going to like just diminish that to one slots room in a big slots game, right? I mean, you might, but it, it's not what the IP, you know, the IP is not going to drive longevity for the game. And then going back to your question about hyper casual, you know, the fact that users churn through them so fast, I think that means that you're probably not going to get a strong IP for hyper casual. You're going to get like a tier two, tier three, at least if I'm sitting in the licensing, right. um, putting my licensing hat on for studios, that's the way I would think of it. If I'm the studios, I want my massive IPs to be engaged with over years, which means games that are built with long-term retention. And so, yeah, I, I think it very much aligns with the great IPs go to hopefully great games. Not that hypercasual are not great games, they're oh, just different user experience. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's interesting what you're saying about longevity. And at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about a brand. This is also why they have brand managers strong IPs and I'm curious as to whether you see kind of like putting the ad monetization hat on whether you see brand advertisers more willing to spend inside IP based games versus other games this is sort of something that's been murmurings about the coming of the brands and we're about to see you know a huge influx of brand advertising dollars into the gaming space it sort of keeps being expected and it kind of happens and it's on the way up and we I think we probably could both agree that there's a lot about game inventory that lends itself to kind of high quality brand experiences but there there are stumbling blocks for brands who are looking at games and saying, okay, this doesn't feel like the right environment for me. But it seems as though IP-based games could actually kind of buck that trend and say, for them, it's a recognizable brand. It's Marvel. So I just happen to be advertising inside a game versus in other kind of brand activations. So I'm curious if you've sort of seen more brand advertising dollars or it's easier to close a brand deal as an IP-based game versus other games. So it definitely helps sell the brand. So we get a lot of requests from ad networks to use our IP or, you know, I was at Warner Brothers, same thing, very large IP and their pitch decks out to brand advertisers, right? Because I think it helps sell that gaming isn't just non-IP game. It isn't just things that you haven't heard of. It's these large IPs. So it certainly helps sell the brand advertising message to brand advertisers. That said, 
you know, on the actual monetization side, and maybe this is because the brands aren't there yet, we don't notice any difference in eCPMs in the games themselves. Mm -hmm. And in fact, sometimes they come with pretty massive restrictions on what we can show. So you can imagine that someone like Warner Brothers wouldn't want competing film studios to be shown in their game. So I think it helps sell the promise of mobile gaming and the higher quality content, but I don't think we've seen it materialize yet in meaningful eCPMs. And then, yeah, you're dealing with restrictions that can also hurt you as well. I do know that like Disney and Zynga to a lesser extent, but Disney has their own brand sales team, but they're selling against all of their inventory, including like ESPN, streaming web, and then games as part of that. And I do know that that actually boosts their eCPMs quite well, but that's a unique situation where they have obviously a much, much larger media base than most other mobile gaming companies. Speaking of restrictions, do you find that working with IPs, despite all the kind of business incentives that they would offer, also come with inevitable restrictions around what you can do on the ad monetization side, also on the UA side? How much do you have to sort of run creatives by brand managers? Or do you have relative freedom to kind of run promotional campaigns the way you want to? So this is another thing that kind of varies by IP. And it kind of goes back to how involved that brand team is in the IP. Also, how much experience they have in gaming first and then in mobile gaming second. So we see different levels of approval process based on the IP. Some IP holders are very protective and are dealing with rules that must follow guidelines or brand playbooks, if you will, that are very detailed, like down to this color cannot be shown with this character. And so you can imagine that creates a lot of back and forth. Other IPs who have a little bit more experience in the space, maybe these IPs are a little bit more exploited across a a number of products will just have a little bit of less hands-on approach. And, you know, at the end of the day, you you definitely have to get things approved, but it's just the level of back and forth that's the difference among them. So it definitely can be a challenge. I think if the IP is new to mobile gaming as well and performance marketing, there is a pretty steep learning curve on how performance marketing works versus the stuff that they're used to. So most brands are used to the movie marketing campaign. They're used to the DVD campaign. They're used to the TV campaign. But if you look at the number of creatives created for those campaigns in a month, best case scenario, you're looking at five to 10. If you're looking at how many creatives are built for UA, if we're only doing five to 10, we're in a bad spot, right? So I think just the sheer scale of the number of creatives that we build for performance marketing is definitely something that many brands need to learn if they haven't been in mobile gaming before. Right. And I guess it it probably um, also limits creative optimization, or or at least it makes it a much longer process. You want to kind of iterate quickly on a creative and you've got to make sure you're running it by a lot of different people. Exactly. And it makes soft launch a challenge because, I mean, live ops are a challenge too, but in soft launch, you're kind of starting with a blank slate of creative ideas and you want to pursue a lot of different ones and obviously you're running up against a timeline that can be challenging and you know many of the big ip games i've worked on i've been probably most stressed leading into worldwide launch around creative that's probably caused me the most anxiety how how does the soft launch process work um with an ip versus with another kind of a non-ip game um so you know i'll kind of walk through high level you know the overall strategy by cycle but 
doesn't differ too much. So basically during the first phase of soft launch, you're you're looking to make sure the game just is working. And at that point, you are driving in users just to make sure there's no bugs. During the second phase of soft launch, you're really trying to partner with the studio to make sure they're getting the data they need to really understand what the in-game metrics are. And by the third phase of soft launch is when you're really starting to build your go-to-market plan and what are the predictive LTVs, what are the CPIs looking like. And so around that third phase is when you really begin ramping up your creative testing. And that's where, you know, you just need to be way ahead of it. So if you think about each of these phases as around four to maybe six weeks, by the time you hit phase three, you need all your approvals in, right? And so the challenge there can be that you might not get some of the key art, you might not get some of the gameplay you need in time to get those approvals routed. So everything becomes more urgent and you have to get everything done earlier than you would in a normal soft launch when you don't need approvals, you can just roll out creative. Mm. So it's really about planning properly and then making sure you're not at phase three with only 10 creatives approved because the chances of you getting them before worldwide launch are really slim. Do you find that certain marketing channels will work better for IP games versus other games? Yes. So one thing I've noticed is that Twitter has been very hit or miss for most performance marketing. It has gotten better over the last year or so, but IP-based games tend to work really well on Twitter. And I think that's because the nature of Twitter is is kind of about a discussion. It's about what's in the um, kind of like, you know, zeitgeist of consumers and IP based games just tend to kind of fit that platform better. Outside of that, the channels really remain the same. I will say that with IP based games, you tend to see your best and lowest CPIs at worldwide launch, largely because, you know, users recognize the game and that top of funnel is really strong. Everybody wants to check it out. Statics tend to work more over video during worldwide launch for IP games. Again, I think because it's instantly recognizable. And then broad campaigns, especially on Facebook, you know, the power of Facebook is that you tend to go very granular on your campaigns, but very broad campaigns like males 18 to 55 tend to work really well with IP-based games, again, at worldwide launch. And what about in terms of kind of other games or other genres of games that you're advertising in? Is it kind of other users who like IP games will like other IP games or do you go kind of on a genre route? Like if it's RPG, you'll make sure that you're going for RPG players. Yeah, great question. Definitely more of the genre route. At the end of the day, these games are appealing to people who like the genre. And the IP hopes to widen the funnel a bit. But if you're going to stick around, it's really because you like the genre. Or maybe the IP got you into a genre you hadn't gotten into before. But by and large, um, the best performance comes from similar genre. Mm. I will say that we tend to find some interest group targeting around things related to the IP that work very well too. So you can imagine obviously for like something like Harry Potter, targeting Harry Potter interest groups worked very well uh, during the launch as well. And in terms of scale, does it help, I guess, that you're kind of operating within a larger world of movie releases, etc.? Does that help feed into scale or are you kind of competing the same as you would with another game? And and outside, let's say, obviously a, a movie launch is going to help, but let's say you're outside of a, of a larger tentpole event. Can you expect to have kind of a nice network effect on scale because you're working with an IP? So it assuredly helps during those big, obviously, movie events, like you said, um, TV seasons. Anecdotally, I know, uh, you know other IP games that are based on TV shows see their lowest CPIs in the season versus when the season's not running. And it makes sense. Like, it's top of mind. You know, it's not 100% true that you're going to see lower CPIs. Like, I think 
that's probably a misnomer. I think when a game works and the IP is, is, is the right one and the art style is right, you will see lower CPIs in general compared to non-IP games. But I've worked on IP games that have failed, you know, where the IP did not result in lower CPIs. So it's obviously not like always true. And there's plenty of failed IP games out there <laughs> that lie in, you know, the desert ruins of the App Store. Graveyard. Yeah. But for the hit games, like those temple events are huge. Right. I want to sort of digress a little because you have been on the licensing side of course and and then on the UA side and now also ad monetization and it's something that we've sort of seen happen across the board actually where more and more these two sides of the business are converging and often in one also in one executive role so that there is one figure or one team that's looking at growth as a whole both in terms of kind of revenue from ad monetization and marketing spend UA is this something that you're seeing yourself how do you feel coming from a UA background has helped your approach to ad monetization and, and maybe vice versa? Yeah, so definitely seeing that ad monetization and UA are either rolling up into the same you know, executive or the same team. And then obviously at smaller indie devs, that usually tends to be one or two people handling both. And I think it's actually very important that both teams work closely together and understand the operations of each. And the reason is like at the end of the day, the UA team is measuring LTV and we're looking at how revenue comes in over time. And, you know, we're basically a ROAS, a return on ad spend business. And a big lever for that is ads. And so just at the bare minimum, understanding um, how ads impact LTV and hopefully increase it. And I think a lot of game teams tend not to think in terms of LTV. So they might see that ads are put in- You said game teams don't think in terms of LTV. Not often what I've seen. And so they, they think in terms of like, you know, individual metrics right. such as ARP DAO, daily spenders, DAU, long-term retention. So just to give you an example, like you can put ads into your game and maybe see a small dip in retention or small cannibalization of an in-game feature that's driving some IAP. But if you're not looking at the overall pie, how ad revenue increased your overall LTV, you might think that ads were detrimental. But if you're looking at it from the, the point of view of LTV growth, nine times out of 10, the ad placement makes sense. And then it's higher LTV for the UA team to operate against. So I think that's like, that's just the first thing. The second thing is, you know, you can get a lot of useful intel on what advertisers are competing against in your inventory on the ad monetization side, which can then help drive some buying decisions on the UA side as well. And then lastly, and this is kind of like, to some extent to me, the holy grail is tying ad revenue back into your ROAS calculations. And, you know, it would conceivably, what's happened over the last two years is that app event optimization on the social platforms has become the norm and purchase right. event tends to be the big driver of that. And what these social platforms have done to some extent is siphoned off all the payers and saying you have to pay more for them right and if you're optimizing on in that purchase revenue it's costly and you're only seeing one form of revenue if you add advertising revenue to that add ROAS if you will then conceivably it opens up a lot more cheaper CPI campaigns that you just wouldn't find backing out if you were only looking at IEP right so and then the whole thing becomes one big snowball rolling down the mountain <laughs> they both fuel each other <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. We've got a lot of the same having a lot of the same discussions also.
also at Iron Source. We call the Snowball the Loop. Interesting. <laughs> but Snowball works too. <laughs> uh, but anyway, last question since we're running out of time. How do you see UA kind of evolving? Let's say in the next year, maybe year and a half, because things move fast in our industry. What do you think is going to be the big UA trend this year slash next? So without a doubt, I think machine learning and campaign automation, not just at the channel level, but across channels is going to be a reality. It's not a question of if, but a question of when. We've already seen it proven out on Google UAC and to a lesser extent Facebook, and then we've seen it with some of the DSPs. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about media buying, it basically is just math. And there's no reason the machines can't take some of the heavy lifting off the media buyers, which will then allow them to focus on the more important stuff to me, which is finding those in-game events that signify user quality that we can then pass back and create lookalike audiences off of. Focusing on creative, the one thing that really moves the needle as things become more democratized, and then focus on some of these like you know plus one kind of uh, innovations around ad ROAS reporting, retargeting, stuff like that. Things to get incremental gains. And so I, I think that's the big one. I mean, to me, that's like the 800-pound gorilla in the room that I think in a couple years' time, most people will be leveraging some kind of technology, whether in-house or out-of-house. Well, thanks, Brian. Super interesting and great to chat to you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next episode. Super Mario or Sonic? Super Mario. Hyper casual or casual? Casual. Native or interstitials? Native. Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? NSYNC. <laughs>